0: In the last episode, I asked the question, if the police were waiting on something they didn't have to finally arrest Funston and charge him with David's murder, what exactly was it? I spoke to a friend of mine who's a former detective after episode 5 released. He said he empathized with the officers who interrogated Funston. He too has been in situations when he was sure of a suspect's guilt and just couldn't quite make the case to a prosecutor. It's easy for someone like me, and likely you too, to think that the combination of Funston's history and that short piece of rope identical to the one used in David's murder should have been enough to charge Funston. Apparently it's not that simple. But what if I told you that Harry Funston didn't stop his life of crime after David's murder? Would you be more convinced that he was the one responsible? And what if I told you Harry Funston confessed to David's murder? in detail years later. Would that be enough? When I started looking into David's case, before his picture was ingrained in my memory, before I could recall names and dates and lead numbers without having to look back at the case file, before I knew Susan and witnessed daily the amount of pain that was caused by David's death, I wanted to solve this. I wanted to find some crumb of truth that would lead me to the person who stole David away. And I had high hopes, too. I was determined to look at this objectively, to question everything and everyone in the name of once and for all, getting the justice David deserves. But again and again, I was led back to Harry Funston. We hear stories every day about murder and violence. And if you consume true crime like I do, when you're doing the dishes and driving to work and eating lunch, You're not shocked by anything, but even if it's common now, even if it happens every single day, we have to remember that David was a child, his life stolen from him before he really had the chance to start living it. I'm old enough now to be David's mother, a thought that takes hold of something in me and doesn't let go. David is frozen in time at 15 years old, and here I am living so many versions of life that David never got to. David never learned how to drive, or had a first job, or graduated high school. He never knew his nieces and nephews and got to laugh with them about the time that Susan, their mom, made a snack for a girl he had just been fooling around with in his bedroom, or how he and Susan used to play darts on a picture of Jesus that hung in their hallway. He never got to go back to California with his sister to sit by the ocean and smoke pot and laugh. He never learned how to fly a plane, got married, or had kids of his own. As tragic as all of that is, the injustice doesn't end there. For 47 years, David's file has sat in a basement collecting dust. The evidence, which could have provided the answers we so desperately need and want, was lost, or worse, destroyed. David's mom Wanda, his sister Diane, and his brother Johnny all died not knowing what happened to him. And it's highly likely that his sister Sally, his sister Susan, and even I will die never knowing. David mattered, and I'm so thankful that he chose me to tell his story, no matter how exhausting and heartbreaking telling it has been. I'm Dylan Kingsley, and this is the final episode of Burn, the unsolved murder of David Iman. Within a week of David's murder, Harry Funston was let go from the Raymore Police Department on a technicality. Chief Orville Slover, whose name I've apparently been mispronouncing, told a KC Star reporter that in the event of finding a body, Raymore officers were to contact him directly. Funston disobeyed that order in the chain of command when he called the Cass County Sheriff's Department and asked them to notify KCPD. Because of this, he was let go. Funston and his family moved to Salina, Kansas, shortly after. Last year, I worked up the nerve to call Ruth. My hope was that now, being divorced from Funston for several decades, and having endured his abuse, witnessed by their daughters, their friends, and the teen boys her husband was grooming, she might speak freely with me about David's case and Funston's possible involvement. But I was disappointed. Ruth claimed that she didn't recall the case at all. In fact, she said David's name didn't even ring a bell. Annoyed, I tried to jog her memory, telling her that not only had Harry been interrogated extensively, she was also questioned. Their house was searched, and their vehicles were taken for processing. She claimed to have no memory of any of that. In response to my question as to why they left Kansas City so abruptly in August or September of 1974, she said she just wanted to go home. I also reached out to Funston's younger daughter. When I called her, I told her I was doing a podcast about a murder from 1974 that happened in Kansas City, and that I had a few questions about her dad. Her response was that she wouldn't talk to anyone who would speak of her father in a derogatory way. Not once in our 60-second conversation did I say David's name or anything about Funston being a person of interest. I didn't share any of my own thoughts about the case. So to me, her response was telling. On September 23, 1974, Cass County Sheriff Bill Goh received a call from a man representing a financial company in Salina. The man was attempting to verify employment for Harry Funston as he had applied for a position with the company. Sheriff Goh referred the man to KCPD, telling him that Harry Funston had recently been the subject of an investigation by the Missouri State Fire Marshal's office. KCPD told that man that because Funston had not been arrested or charged in connection with any offense, it would be inappropriate for them to comment on the matter. According to Funston, he was turned down for the job because the company learned of the investigation. Soon after the move, newspapers show Funston working as a service manager for the Salina Volkswagen dealership. On April 3rd, 1975, in the fire alarm section of the Salina Journal, Funston's name is mentioned. At 7.42 a.m., Funston's vehicle caught fire in his driveway, causing $1,500 in damage to the engine compartment and the dash. Funston had two hospital stays listed in the paper in 1975. Both eerily close to the one-year anniversary of David's death, and also the medical procedure he had done on the day he found David's body. By July first, nineteen seventy-six, Funston was working as a salesman for Sentinel Decor, and on August eighteenth, his name was once again mentioned in the paper in connection to a fire. The day before, a woman's house caught on fire because kids were playing with cigarettes and matches in a wooden camper parked by her house. The owner of the home said she wasn't aware of the fire until her neighbor, Harry Funston, knocked on her door and informed her. At the scene of an arson at a school in June of 1977, police found a bottle with a rag and gasoline still burning. The school was one and a half miles from Funston's home. Remember the Topeka arsons caused by those homemade Molotov cocktails? On August 14, 1977, exactly three years after David's murder, there was an arson at a condemned building two and a half miles from Funston's home and less than a half a mile from his job at Sentinel Decor. This fire was at 3.45 a.m. Two days later, at 1.30 a.m., fire destroyed the Sweetheart Candy and Tobacco Company less than a half a mile from the other arson. At this point, I feel crazy thinking Funston was committing all of these arsons but you have to admit that the late night or early morning timing of them and their close proximity to Funston's house and job are coincidental. Also coincidental is that so many incidents in Harry Funston's life seem to happen in the middle of August. Funston had a four-day hospital stay a year after David's murder. The next year, on August 18th, his neighbor's house caught on fire. A year after that, two arsons within a half mile from Funston's house occur on the three-year anniversary of David's death, and two days after it. Sometime in 1977, Funston began working for an insurance company, and in June of 1978, a promotion moved him and his family to Hutchinson, Kansas, about an hour south of Salina. He didn't stay at the insurance company long. By April of 79, Funston was managing along John Silver's. That year, Bill Pesick, a reporter for the Kansas City Star, interviewed Funston and wrote the article I've mentioned before titled, Murder Accusation Haunts Ex-Officer After Five Years. In the article, Pesick wrote that he had been warned by investigators that Funston likely wouldn't talk about David's case and that he might be dangerous. The investigators also cautioned that Funston was devious and cunning. I reached out to Bill Pesick in October of last year to see what he remembered of the case and of Funston. What he told me that he didn't mention in the article was that a Missouri State Fire Marshal investigator, possibly Jack Caproon, advised Pesick not to stay overnight in Hutchinson after interviewing Funston. Pesek stayed overnight anyway, as he had agreed during the interview to speak with Funston again the next day. Pesek told me that Funston had directed him to knock on the restaurant's back door the next morning. As he drove there, he thought Funston might shoot him, as Funston had told him the back door was where hold-up guys would enter after knocking as if they were delivery drivers. Funston said any employee who opened that door would be fired. But Funston wasn't hostile with Pesek. As the men spoke, Funston prepared the day's meals, slicing fish with a long knife. He also wore an ankle holster with a pistol in it. A woman reached out to me in December of 2020 and said she was friends with Harry Funston in the early 80s when he worked as a manager for Long John Silver's. I'll call her Mary. Mary told me that Funston had robbed that Long John Silver's store. He wore a mask and she thought he was armed. Funston ordered employees into the storage room and took all the cash from the store. The employees identified Funston by his size and his voice. Mary vividly remembers this incident, because after Funston was arrested, she borrowed money from her mother to give to a bail bondsman to get Funston out of jail. Eventually, Funston got off on a technicality. Because of this, there are no court records at all about the incident meaning it never went in front of a judge. I did get the initial incident report, the only report I have a right to under the Kansas Open Record law, but it doesn't mention Harry Funston, and only gives the store's address and the name of several witnesses. Mary met Funston in the early 80s through mutual friends. By this time, he and Ruth had divorced, and their oldest daughter was living with Funston in an apartment. The younger daughter lived with Ruth. Mary told me that everyone knew that Funston was gay. She and Funston often hung out, going to dinner and movies together. When she learned about his involvement in the Long John Silver's robbery, she was surprised. But she remembers the detective on the case saying to her, When this is over, I'll tell you about Harry Funston. He's not a good person. Mary never followed up with the detective, and regrets it now that she knows more about Funston's past. In July or August of 1980, before Funston robbed the Long John Silvers and still held his position as manager, he hired a 27-year-old man named Edward Taman to be his assistant manager. Taman and Funston became close friends, and eventually Funston told Taman he needed to borrow some money from him, or he was going to lose his car and get evicted from his apartment. Tayman lent him the money. About two months later, Funston went to Taman's apartment for dinner also present was Taman's roommate. Funston called Taman to a back bedroom and said that since Taman had been helping him, he wanted to divulge some things about himself. Funston went on to say that he had been a police officer in the city of Raymore, Missouri four years earlier and had gotten involved in organized crime. Funston claimed he had become a hitman for Nick Savella. Savella was a prominent figure in Kansas City organized crime from 1950 to 1977 when he was sent to prison for illegal gambling. Funston said that he had to kill a gopher for Savella because this kid, and three others, messed up several thousand dollars worth of narcotics. Taman asked Funston to elaborate. This was Funston's story. That night, Funston picked up a boy in his patrol car and took him to a secluded area where he poured gasoline on him and lit him on fire. He left the area, drove into Raymore, and took the car through a car wash. He wiped down the inside to get rid of any evidence that might connect him to the murder. Funston then picked up a different vehicle at police headquarters and went home. In mid-January 1982, Taman contacted the Kansas City Police Department and spoke with a detective, Gary Jenkins. When he was asked why he took so long to reach out to authorities, he said he felt Funston was lying about the situation. That was until October of 1981, when Taman told a friend about what Funston had said. Apparently the friend asked Funston about the situation, because a few days later, Funston told Taman he better stop shooting off at the mouth, or he would be executed. At this time, Taman believed that Funston may have been involved or he would have no reason to threaten him. From January 22nd to January 30th, Taman was in contact with Funston several times pertaining to his vehicle and furniture he had in storage. Funston was in possession of Taman's car and said he wasn't going to give it back and there was nothing Taman could do about it. Taman responded by saying there was something he could do about it. He was going to testify against him. Funston told Taman he would kill him if he tried. On January 27th, after weeks of no contact with KCPD, Taman called the department back. It wasn't until February 1st, 1982, that Taman gave the statement I'm detailing now. This is the very last report in David's case file. To my knowledge, Edward Taman was never contacted after his statement in February 82. Harry Funston was never contacted about his confession or the threats he made on Taman's life. I reached out to Gary Jenkins just a couple months ago. According to the website ganglandwire.com, Jenkins is a former intelligence unit detective who has produced numerous documentaries, authored three books, and produces and hosts his own true crime podcast called Gangland Wire. You could say that Gary Jenkins is the expert on the Kansas City Mafia. I gave him a quick rundown of Funston's confession and asked the reasons this wouldn't have been followed up on. Jenkins told me that at the time, it was fairly common for people to claim they were affiliated with the mafia. It was a way of posturing, making themselves look tougher and more important than they actually were. He didn't see any validity at all in that part of Harry Funston's confession. Jenkins doesn't remember David's case, or Funston's confession originally relayed to him in 1982. Likely, he said, Taman was unreliable in some way, or facts were checked within the department without a report being made. Five years passed, and in August of 1987, after a two-month-long undercover FBI investigation, Harry Funston was arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit burglary and conspiracy to commit a bank robbery. Funston was working as head of security at the Western Hotel and Bingo Parlor in Las Vegas, when he and four other men, one of which was his older brother Larry, planned the crime. Finally, after so many crimes before this, Harry Funston was actually convicted and spent five years in federal prison. Just a week after the arrests of the five men, Harry's older brother was denied bail. The judge cited Larry's total disregard for the life and safety of others, referring to a videotape of Larry and the others voting to kill one of the other men after they carried out the robbery. My FOIA request to the FBI for files pertaining to the casino incident was finally approved after an appeal. I'm still waiting on those records. Since this is the last episode, I wanted to share with you my theories about what happened on August 14th, 1974. In my opinion, there are a couple possible scenarios that played out that summer night almost 50 years ago. The first is that Funston got off duty at 11 o'clock p.m. He took the other reserve officer who had been riding with him home and went back to the Raymore Police Station. He got into his personal vehicle, like he had done so many times before, and went cruising for teenage boys. Funston saw David walking home and offered to give him a ride. David accepted, having hitchhiked his way home from his girlfriend's house before. Funston put his hand on David's leg or made some other sexual advance, and the two of them fought when David resisted. Maybe the fight became physical, and Funston hit David hard enough to knock him unconscious. Funston drove David to County Line Road, tied him up in order to move him from the vehicle, poured gasoline on David, and lit him on fire. Knowing it would be suspicious for him to find David's body while in plain clothes and his personal vehicle, Funston drove back into Raymore, put on his police uniform, and got back into his patrol vehicle. This theory very much points to a crime of opportunity, and doesn't take into account Jack, Funston's friend and possible lover, and his statement about remembering an interaction between Funston and David. It also doesn't take into account David telling Rick that if anything happened to him, it was Harry Funston who was responsible. The second scenario is one in which all of the same things happened that night, except that Funston knew David regularly walked home from Linda's house. He waited and forced David into his vehicle at gunpoint or with the threat of arresting him, or maybe even by knocking him unconscious. All of this could have been for a number of reasons. Maybe he had made sexual advances before and David threatened to tell. Or maybe Funston had propositioned David to commit burglaries for him. The possibilities are endless. In this scenario, both Jack's and Rick's statements make sense. Unfortunately, I think the answers are buried with David and with Harry Funston, who died in November of 2019, just 12 days after his 75th birthday. I have a few favors to ask of you. I want you to share your theories and questions on the Burn Facebook page. Now that you know as much of the story as I do, I think it's important that I make other considerations and work backwards from theories you have that may differ from mine. Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, and even if you haven't, please rate and review on the app where you've listened. These make it possible for David's story to reach people who may not otherwise. On the website for this podcast, burnthepodcast.com, you can pay a one-time fee of $15 and gain lifetime access to police reports, newspaper articles, and photos pertaining to David's case. By viewing these documents, you may notice something I've missed and help in finding answers for David. All proceeds will go to Susan to recoup the cost of David's case file. Lastly, this Saturday, August 14th, on the 47th anniversary of David's murder, Susan and I are holding a memorial for David at Miner Park in Kansas City. We welcome you to join us in honoring David. More information can be found on the Facebook page for the podcast.